Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this last part of our conversation on the church. I really do hope this conversation will help you in your life, in your journey of faith. And uh, as always, if you have something you want to share with us, please do so at FrontierFaithPodcast at gmail.com. I'm coming to you before the podcast actually starts to just briefly apologize for any sound issues you may have. Uh, You'll hear some background noises. You'll hear some cutting in and out. I hope it's not too distracting. I kind of limited it as much as I could. We had to switch some of our programs that we're using for podcasting because of internet issues and other stuff. I just wanted to make you aware of that, and I wanted to thank you for being patient with us, two theologians, academics who are trying to do something uh, that we generally don't do in the technical world of editing and so forth. And I thank you so much for all that you uh, do by just listening. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks again for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know. It's honestly okay not to know pretty much anything around your journey of faith as long as you're in the process of moving somewhere. And we have in our lifetime experienced a great deal of pressure to know what we believe and why we believe it. And Ryan and I here, we are pushing back on that just a bit to encourage you to enjoy the journey and to be comfortable in the frontier zone where you don't know what you believe or maybe what you, why you believe something. And we just want to encourage you and tell you it's okay. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And today we're going to continue our conversation or actually going to finish our conversation on the church and the church's function or purpose for us. Yeah, so last time we talked about, um, you know, basically our own heritages and our theological understandings and communities that we grew up in and what we kind of noticed. And in our case, it was specifically this idea that the the Pentecostal world I grew up in was very much an experiential um, based experience of God, right? So church was about experiencing God through the spirit, other things too, but that seemed to be the primary thing that was was the point of church, the goal. Um, whereas the uh, Lutheran one that Nate grew up in was more focused on the intellectual side of right understanding, especially theology and understanding faith and doctrine and those kinds of things. And we kind of just ended with like looking at those and then looking at the um, some of the problems inherent in both of those approaches. And that brings us now to, so what do we do with it from here? Um, and that's what we've been talking about and what we're going to look at today. So what was the main takeaway from our two conversations so far around the purpose and function of the church? So my takeaway, my main takeaway was that I saw a lot of really good things and strengths in both the one I grew up with as well as the one that Nate did. I think what I saw was there's really good stuff about wanting to experience God um, through the church and that being the thing you emphasize. But I also saw that like for my own self, like 
I felt like I was missing a lot because I didn't have as much of the intellectual um, side of things that Nate described in his. And my takeaway was, and especially from spending a lot of time at the same seminary that Nate went to with this same group of Lutheran friends, um, I often felt like and still feel like just as an example of what we're talking about, these two traditions could really use a healthy dose of each other. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean that they're going to become um, Luther Costals and, you know, make a church <laughs> all as one together because, well, that's not the point. Um, and it would never happen anyway, but it doesn't, there's no reason that that needs to happen. What I think more of like, it made me think about, so in the more experiential world, what would it look like to have more space for the education intellectual side of faith and doctrine and theology? And then it made me also wonder what the um, the opposite would look like. So in a conservative Lutheran group like, like Nate um, is a part of, what would that look like to look for new ways to experience God um, in a, whether in a worship service or, you know, on a personal basis. But that was kind of my main takeaway of thinking about what would that look like if just to use those two as an example, because those are the ones we're most familiar with. Mm -hmm. What would that look like if they were able to do something like that? Yeah. So I 100% agree. I think that we can learn from each other. And of course, we're just saying the two of us and our heritages, just because it's convenient, it could be really any, it could be Catholic or um, Baptist or whatever. But when I, I, I agree that we can learn more from each other, and maybe that could speak something into our faith. But before we get into that, it sounds like there's something there about maybe... You've given some more thought to this, that maybe there's something that you want or maybe something you wanted from your experience in the church um, before you could put words to it. Is that sound? Is that true? Yeah, I, I think it is, although I admit it's it's hard to figure out how to put it into words exactly. Um, because my first reaction, I'm just going to go with that, and then we can talk about <laughs> how that is both good and problematic, right? Um is like, especially growing up and even now, like I talked a lot in the last episodes about how a lot of my faith is, is based on not just like experience, but also like emotions and feelings and, and God, I feel like God often talks to me or, um, leads me in those kinds of ways. And what I would have really liked in all of that and still do sometimes if I'm going to use this word and then tell you why the word doesn't work, I would have liked more certainty that it was actually God. <laughs> now, obviously, that word falls apart because yeah. so it's not quite the right word. But I think what I'm look what I would have liked is more of a framework, maybe, for how to evaluate that kind of thing, right? And not one that I'm not talking about a, here's a formula. If a plus B equals C, then it is God, <laughs> but more of a framework for work, how to work through honestly in your mind and in your spirit. But regardless of what you think, you can't separate your mind from this process. We just, human beings don't work that way. Right. Um, even when we don't consciously think about something, our minds are working. Um, but like, some kind of 
more robust framework for one, knowing when a feeling I had or an experience I had was from God, or, you know, I, I tend to be fairly, I think, spiritually sensitive in that way. But another thing that was often lacking was, well, okay, what in the world do I do with it? You know, mm. God may, I think God may have said something to me or it might be leading me in a certain direction, but what do I do with it? How do I use that for me or to help other people or in the church or whatever it is? And again, I recognize that it's not going to be a science. And I'm not saying if only I could have figured it out 100%. But, and, I, and you know, I'm not all, I'm also not saying that nobody ever talked about that at all. I think I probably mentioned that there were some loose kinds of frameworks offered by certain people, but they were all different and all pretty. Is amorphous the right word? Does that mean what I think it does? All pretty uh, hard to get your mind around or hard to know for sure or, you know, that kind of thing. And I yeah. think that's just an example for me of like, I wonder if there was a more robust theology of how that kind of thing works. And maybe there is one out there, but it was not one that I was taught, right? Um, that would have been really helpful. Or one that I was taught. Right, yeah. But but I feel like the kind of approach to faith and doctrine and theology that you describe, even if it doesn't have one for that, because it's it may not be a question that, that people in your world ask in that way, right? But I right. feel like that approach would be better equipped to... Um, have some kind of to have a better ability to come up with that kind of guidance, even if it was about a different question. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the same would be true for us. I, I could say obviously, but it might not be obvious to other Lutherans where we could very much throughout my history, there have been, and you can listen to this podcast. There are sometimes where I'll say, I forgot which one. It's like I ask a question and I'm asking with the limited vocabulary that I have within the limited tradition I have. And they answer the question, but it's not the question I'm really asking. You know, I'm asking something more emotional, something like, am I okay? Am I valuable? Do I still matter? How do I feel okay? Right. And we didn't really have, at least theologically, I could say, you know, outside of theology, but that depends on person to person. But theologically, we don't have an approach to really handle those things. You're supposed to take the pure logic and apply it emotionally. But there's, again, no guidance to do that. There's no, like, to use your word, there's no framework to help us, which is sort of ironic. I was just thinking that it's ironic how yet again, it's the same problem from different sides. (laughs) Yeah. And we're, we're the framework people because we put a framework around all of our theology and yet we don't have one to help with some of this stuff. So I guess what, what we're speaking into is that a way forward begins with a recognition that other faith traditions, at the very least, other expressions of the Christian faith have something to offer us other than just existing for the other, the sake of other people being saved. Hmm. Now, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, the alarm bells are going off here. Are you saying that everybody has something to offer? 
<laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird, right? Because throughout most of my tradition and my history within my tradition, I'm sure this is true for you too. We've been in this weird denominational battle that we've inherited mm -hmm. that for at least me makes no sense. Like it makes sense logically and I could get invested in the logic, but why do I care what a bunch of Calvinists believe? Why do I care? Why do I care what Catholics believe in the sense that it doesn't define my beliefs? Right. You know, I'll give a good example. It's one that's come up a few times in my conversation with folks, but we have this program in the Lutheran Church called Confirmation, and Confirmation is an adolescent program where you go to learn more adult areas of the faith, uh, more advanced logic and descriptions and so forth. The goal is to move beyond scriptural stories, Bible stories, and kind of move towards interpretation. Um, that sounds terrible, but it's not moving away. It's just adding the uh, interpretive piece. And we do that somewhat, but most of the time in Lutheran churches that I've been a part of, they teach doctrine. So they're all about teaching theology. And the way that they typically teach theology is not only what we believe, but they highlight what other people believe and say, not only is it not what we believe, but it's wrong. So and it's cat or, uh, um, catechism, is that the word? Confirmation, yeah. sorry. Is, catechesis. Is, catechesis is, is like... A lot of ways, it's a very it's a negative theology, huh? No, it's not a negative theology. It is an antagonistic theology. Okay. A negative theology is a good theology because it it highlights the limits that we have as human beings. So there are certain things we can't say about God, and if we say those things, if we try to describe God, we're kind of going into territory that's not very uh, good for us or him. So this is very much the opposite, because we're going to say lots of things about exactly. God. Exactly. Yeah. And we're going to say lots of things about church bodies and other denominations, too. And we don't really know those things, but we're still going to say them. So do they mention, like, specifically, you know, Catholics or whoever? Yeah. Yeah, so a big example, uh, because confirmation is meant to get someone ready for uh, Holy Communion, whatever that means. Um, and so they highlight, I'm going to do just a brief like overview. They kind of go into very specifics, but the overview is that Lutherans are somewhere between Catholics and Evangelicals. Even that is going to get criticism because it's not precise enough. But I feel like it's um, true and it's not. <laughs> yeah. So Catholics, they believe in something called transubstantiation, where uh, the body and blood turn into Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, the bread and wine turn into Jesus' body and blood, soul and divinity. And then um, uh, evangelicals believe that it's a, a symbol. Well, most of course of they them. do this. Yeah, they do it in a very broad way because what they're trying to say is we don't believe those things. What we believe is that Martin Luther said in with and under. I don't know what that Whatever means. Whatever that but means. <laughs> that whole, that uh, God's, uh, Jesus' blood and body are in with and under the sacrament elements. The real presence idea, right? The real presence idea, right. And what's fascinating and what ryan has brought out is that what we do here is we don't just explain what we believe and try to 
garner an appreciation for that heritage. Instead, what we do is we say, this is the right way. And those other people, what they believe, that's the wrong way. And if you want to be a part of a church that believes this, then you go join the Baptist church if you want to do symbol. If you want to believe that it turns into Jesus, that's fine. Go join a Catholic. But you're not going to be Lutheran, and you're not going to be right, (laughs) because Lutherans know what's going on there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's very interesting. So... So, Go ahead. So then, okay, so since we're talking about that, not that you have to develop an entire uh, system of catechesis here on the spot, but like, so you, you mentioned it briefly, but what might that look like if it did it differently? Yeah, I think the way that it could do it differently that highlights kind of where we're moving towards what the church can be is we don't have to move away from what we believe. That's a false problem. A lot of people who talk about how we get together in diversity and how we get together with different people who believe different things, we think immediately the threat comes, so we have to sacrifice what we believe. And that's not true, unless what you believe is that you're right and everybody else is wrong. Yeah, you might have to Yeah, you might have to get rid of that one, but you don't have to... I'm not. I can't. I can't get away from... Uh, Holy Communion actually giving me forgiveness in God's grace. It's it's part of who I am as a believer of the faith according to the Lutheran tradition. And so we can teach that and we can teach it as if it should be honored as it is. And, you know, we can do a little bit of why. There's always a reason. But we don't need to do why in a proof text type, type of way or a, a logical proof kind of way like you know, it has to be this way because there's no other way that it can be type proof, uh, which happens all the time, not just in confirmation, but across the board. Uh, we can teach it as, well, here's where Luther came up with this idea. It came from scripture, of course, but it also came from his inherited heritage and how he saw the world and what he saw going on. And, you know, we want to hold on to what he's talking about, because in his day and age, he believed that Catholics were more interested in have you earn your faith through the works that you do. And then there was rampant abuse because of that. That's a huge gloss over what was happening. And how beautiful is it that Holy Communion can be something that's given to you no matter what you do. And it declares that you receive God's love and forgiveness no matter what. And so we can hold on to that, but we don't have to go a step further and say, therefore, if you believe this is a symbol, then you're a heretic or uh, heterodox would be the word that we always use. Other believers, Um, you don't have to go that far and say they're wrong. They kind of do communion right, but they get this wrong piece wrong, this one piece wrong, and we got to try to correct them and all that. We can also see their expression of their faith as beautiful for what it is. We don't have to say it's right, but we can say it's beautiful for what it is, just like our belief is beautiful for what it is. So like kind of this idea of we we can appreciate and, and continue to do whatever it is we mm-hmm. do and believe whatever it is we believe about something. But it's almost, well, I think it is like, so then what can we 
well, first of all, do we understand what something is actually doing in another system? Um, I have a great example of that for you. So as someone who grew up in the Pentecostal world, we only baptize adults, Mm -hmm. right? And there's this idea that infant baptism is like bad, okay? Yeah. (laughs) And the reason is because it's, quote, not in the Bible, which... People disagree with that, but whatever, not the point right now. (laughs) And so when I started at the seminary, I knew that this was a thing. And I remember the first, you know, first class or so thinking, huh, well, I'm never going to do that because it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But what I came to understand is how much I didn't understand about what was actually going on in an infant baptism. Right. So what I didn't know was that, uh, some of the functions of it. So how I did not know what it was really symbolizing this idea that someone is a a part and member of the church, even from the very beginning, that the congregation has a responsibility to be part of that person's spiritual life and to help the parents um, in that with the child. And also, you know, regardless of how the specifics work, there's something about how faith is imparted to the heart, Mm -hmm. whether that's in waters of baptism itself or something else. And once I understood that that's what was happening within that context, when that is practiced, all of a sudden, a lot of my objections to it didn't seem so important. They actually seemed more petty than anything (laughs) else in the sense that like, even if it's not quote in the Bible, I couldn't object to any of the things that were being done there. Right. Um, And I found that you know, like I said, do I believe that faith is imparted through the literal waters of baptism? I don't know. Does it matter? I believe that God gives us faith, you uh-huh. know. Um, so am I going to start baptizing infants? Don't know. But is it bad if other people do it? No, I don't think so. Especially when the things they're doing, I can affirm, even if I don't do it in the same yeah. way. And so I think that's kind of what we're, we're getting at here is like, it took, I had to understand what was actually going on, how it was actually functioning in a group that wasn't mine before I could evaluate it at all. And then once I did, I had to look at, okay, well, what can I do with it? What can I use? Is there something I could learn from it or that it teaches me and go from there? Um, Never once, at least these days, I don't lose any sleep over, you know, should I try and convince them that this isn't wrong? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean, especially since it won't work anyway, but... um, We're a stubborn bunch. Well, everybody is. (laughs) Yeah, just to add to that, uh, through the experience that I've had with you being my friend and and hearing a bit more, I've I've spent a lot more time with Pentecostals than any other group outside of Lutherans uh, for the last... You're just lucky that ...four or eight years. I mean, it's been a while. Yeah. and I can say that in the same sense that you're talking about baptism, the same idea of free will has been morphed in my mind. Like for us, it was always like a bad thing when it came to free will, especially around salvation, mm-hmm. because uh, free will is, I mean, Luther has a famous book called Bondage of the Will. Uh, and so your will isn't free, it's bound, and that's the whole reason Jesus has to do what he does kind of thing. And for us, the way that we're taught that is really just to think of free will as bad. And 
What I have missed through that is that the free will that free free will theology, at least, and probably even philosophy, because you know it's huge in philosophy too, um, speaks to something that Lutherans miss. And what we miss is the value of humanity, the value of an individual person, in a way that we just can't we can't comprehend, we can't grab onto. Free will allows okay. not for agency only. It is agency, but it's not just agency. It's an agency from a worthwhile party, worthwhile individual. And to hear how you interact with free will in the conversations that we've had for years now has helped me see free will in a in the same way I think you've seen baptism. Can I get on board with free will? I don't know. I'm not quite there in terms of that because it's a brand new kind of idea for me. Right. But I can at least say um, Ryan seems to understand something about free will that's valuable and something that is actually quite beautiful too. Right. I think this kind of thing can make you reevaluate a lot of your assumptions and predispositions and closely held beliefs in a way that you didn't necessarily even know they needed to be mm-hmm. <clears throat> like, and then when you do that, it's not, it's not so you can be in crisis all the time and be just like, Oh, I just can't know anything <laughs> ever. Although honestly, in some ways that might be a better yeah. place to be. Um, the idea of like, it seems like God really has lots and lots of ways to teach us things. And I think we have, all of us, have closed off one of the, a big way that, a big avenue that God could do that through because we've been so tribal and so um, our very identities as Christians have been so wrapped up in that tribe. um, While there is benefit to that, to being part of a tribe, I mean, there's also, you miss a lot when you can't look at anybody or you can't look outside yourself. and I think, yeah, so what can, so I, so we both just gave examples there of something that I think God has really been uh, teaching us over the last years yeah. that turned out to be really helpful right. and, and turned out to help me understand something about God that I needed to, um, and to be less of an asshole, which is always a plus, <laughs> you know, which is also something yeah. I think God does. <laughs> um, I mean, just look at Jacob anyway. Um, yeah. What kind of arrogance is it? And I say this as somebody who's been in that field for so long to say that our group, however long it's been around and no matter how quote unquote universal it is, because I'm trying to cover, you know, short to long to small to large. How arrogant is it to say that we have the meaning of what it means to be a Christian? This is where our movement came along and got the Bible right. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, and even even the Catholic Church. Uh, I, there's a lot I like about the Catholic Church, and I probably need to speak more into that in these kinds of conversations. But one of the troubling things is they believe, uh, not all, but, you know, Catholics generally believe they're the one true church. And it's like, I get it. I really do, because Lutherans are, are, are honestly no different in, in a similar way. But just because you've been the biggest kid on the block, you've been around the longest, doesn't mean you have the truth. 
it's fascinating to me that no matter how long you've been around, no longer how short you've been around as a Christian or as a Christian group, the tendency we have is to move towards I have the right thing, and I think it might be because of that certainty, unlike the way you said it, the other opposite way. It's this desire to know fully and completely that I have the truth, but hmm. that could be another conversation altogether. Well, but I mean, I think that idea of I have the truth, it makes the world a lot less scary. It makes the world understandable. It makes your faith... Um, like it takes something, you know, it takes the ineffable, not understandable, totally other God. <laughs> right? right. And it makes it so that we can apprehend God in a way that we couldn't. It makes it so we know how to live our lives, quote unquote. It makes it so that complex questions are answered and all of this stuff. Right. Except that it doesn't really yeah. at some point along the line. And it makes it makes life less beautiful. I mean, well, like I said, how much do you miss yeah. if you only ever go to Wendy's? <laughs> well, you miss a lot <laughs> and you probably die early. But I'm just saying, like, you know, if you only ever go to one restaurant your whole life, however good it is, you're sure missing out on a lot if you never eat. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, um, and I think I think this approach really helps us avoid the straw man that comes up of like, you know, because we should probably talk about this a little bit. So, so are you saying that anything goes? Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't make fun of it that way, but I mean. So like, you're talking about relativism and right. what about relativism? Does it mean that uh, when you see beauty in other denominations, other faith expressions, does that mean that they're true too? Oh, see, now that's, that's the tough part, is it? When we say, are they true um as well yeah then we go oh well, wait that's not how truth works right. right at least that people who bring up that argument would tend to have that kind of approach to it yeah because um, they're thinking within the construct of truth being one thing one universal thing that applies to everybody so it's objective it's universal it's obvious and so it's also kind of simple in a sense mm -hmm. because there's only one of them. But like we were saying earlier, we, I mean, we've talked about how we view objective truth like that in previous ones. Yeah. So putting that aside for a second or for right now, though, but we're not even asking people to have to set that aside to do what we're talking about here. Right. Right. Because we even said, well, no, you're going to do what you are going to do in the community you are in. Like, you still have to evaluate what's going on. And, you know, like I said, we're not asking everybody to all come back into one mono church yeah. because I'm sorry, that ain't this just ain't going to happen. And I don't even know that we really want it to. I don't think so. But, um, but you know, at the same time, you can recognize um, what can I learn from these other people? And then what does that look like in a way that I still believe is faithful to um, my expression of faith. It's really just taking out the evaluative part of are they right or wrong for doing it? <laughs> yeah. I think. Right. I think that's what it's doing. So what would this look like to bring us back to the conversation around church? What would this look like lived out? How can we live this out in such a way in the church in order to 
have a fuller faith that's beneficial not just for us, but for hopefully all people? Well, I think part of it is we're going to have to be more open to, um, well, we're going to have to to do some some learning, right? We're going to have to step outside of our own um, communities or contexts, at least to the point of knowing some things about other people and how they do faith. Because if you don't have any idea, like if you have no idea what the Catholics believe about anything, it's going to be hard to know what they might be able to teach you about God. Uh, right. Right. And I don't know that that necessarily means you have to read books, although you could, right? Does everyone have to go to mass? I don't know, although it might be a good idea, yeah. you know, um, it might just be like, I'm, you know, to use this as an example, most of us know a Catholic person or two, right? Yeah. So maybe it just looks like, talking to them about some of this stuff in a way of help me understand instead of let me tell you why you're wrong. I don't know. It's pretty easy to tell Catholics why they're wrong. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> then we'll switch it to Seventh-day Adventists. How's that? <laughs> or whoever. <laughs> right. Know? And I would even say, like, I'd encourage people to find one that you've always thought was pretty on the fringe, you know, um, or one that you just know nothing, hardly anything about. Um, and not in a way of, so I have to do it like they do necessarily, but just like, can you give yourself the freedom and do you have the security in your own beliefs to look around a little bit and just see what other people are doing? I, I think it really has to start there. Yeah, that's an interesting beginning point, a point of departure, because I think if you've been watching or sorry, if you've been listening to us f throughout this time, you probably get this sense that Ryan and I are pretty secure in our beliefs, even if they are fluid, even if they are kind of amorphous. Uh, and... It's, it's a really weird, interesting dichotomy, or as Luther would say, a paradox, because there's this sense that logically you would have to know what you believe in order to be secure in your beliefs. Yet, <laughs> Ryan and I, the conversations that I've had with Ryan, I, I can guarantee you there are pastors in my church body, I'm sure there are pastors in his as well, there are faith leaders across the board. If you were to have any kind of conversation like this, it would quickly devolve into defensive mechanisms where it's like, we can't have this kind of conversation. Yeah, we've all been to, any of us who've been to a seminary have been part of theological dick measuring contests <laughs> at some point, you know. Yeah, yeah, so... It's weird because you would think the way in, for, in order for you to become more secure in your faith is to know more about it. And that's generally the tagline of most podcasts and other things out there that are oriented towards um, traditional ways of doing theology. It's paradoxical because you would think that the whole the tighter you hold on to your theology, the more you know the more or the more you experience maybe even that within your tradition that you hold on to your faith even more. But I've experienced people who know a lot about faith. I've experienced people who know a lot about their heritage and they seem to be the, the people that are on the edge more often than not. 
It's those that hold on to their theology a bit loosely, those that hold on to it. And it's, of course, from my framework of thinking through things. When they think about those things as not secure in my mind, but secure somewhere else, then it turns into this thing where I feel more secure about my faith because it's not built on the belief structures that someone has taught me. It's built on, to be cliche the you know the solid rock it's built Mm -hmm. on who jesus really is rather than who we've made him into well and i mean i think you could look at it in a way that says the faith that you build yourself or at least i mean yes it's i'm not talking about it's totally individualistic but the faith that you participate in building is going to be stronger than one you find somewhere i think yeah right um you're more invested in a faith that you've been an active part of than, uh, you know, one you just kind of exist in without really doing Mm. much or thinking about. Um, I like that. And, you know, like, it's not to say that you're not like, you know, part of the way that I've been able to do this is, um, you know, at the last church I was at, I had a really good pastor who was, pretty uh open to this kind of thing and it's not saying he didn't believe in what whatever it was we believed he did but you know i talked to him about this kind of stuff and we talk about like the the infant baptism thing and other things i was working through as i learned more about other people and did we start doing that at our church no but like i'm just saying like it's a we're not saying you can't like uh have somebody else help you as you go through this as long as it's the right person to help you do that. (laughs) It's not, we're not saying that faith becomes entirely individualistic and it's all just up to you because I don't think faith should ever be that way. But um, we're just saying like you can hopefully give yourself some permission to explore a little more and be an active part of what's going on instead of just there. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think that's been one of the most empower th- empowering things for me is that I get to have a say in my beliefs. Right. Right. You do. I mean, whether you believe you do or not, whether you want to or not, I mean, you do. I mean, ultimately, even if you don't think about it, like deciding not to decide is a decision Yeah. <laughs> about whatever it is. Um, so, I mean, I think that's what helped me, too, is I realized about, well, some big things, but just in general of like, we all make those decisions. We all build the faith that we're a part of, whether we realize it or not. I just think it's an inescapable part of human existence, uh, religious or otherwise. Um, I guess I'm enough of an ex- existentialist to say that, <laughs> but but uh, it really helped. Like I think in in my churches, we talked a lot about the spirit um, bringing freedom and liberty, and yet it didn't always feel like it felt like that freedom and liberty was very constrained, which is a funny thing to say. Isn't yeah. It? Um, you know, and at the same time, they'd say that the Holy spirit is the spirit of truth who will lead you into truth. I mean, that's what Jesus said. And yet for some reason we can't trust that same spirit of truth to lead us to truth or the spirit <laughs> can only lead us to truth within to our, our context. Truth. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, Nobody says it that way, and I don't imagine most people even conceive of it that way. 
but it's it's kind of breathtaking in its arrogance if you think yeah. about it that way. Well, the the image that keeps coming to my mind is Paul's body of Christ, hmm. because typically I've even preached it this way. Uh, typically, we think of the body of Christ as a congregation. Hmm. So we think about, you know, how the congregation, some of us are hands, some of us are hearts, some of us is our eyes, and I've so on and so it forth. that way, too, yeah. Yeah. But maybe Paul's talking about the church universal. Uh, maybe he's talking about how maybe Pentecostals are hands, just to use a metaphor. No, I think and, tongues. <laughs> oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> Ugh, those puns. Um <laughs> So Pentecostals are, t- are tongues. Can Lutherans be the brain? Um, sure, I think they have to be. <laughs> Christ is the brain, of course, the, yeah. the head, but whatever. You know, you get the point. It's like maybe part of the way forward is recognizing that Paul's metaphor has different layers of interpretation or levels of interpretation. Could it mean for a congregation? Of course it could. Could it also mean for his entire church that, you know, and that plays into really interesting things. Could it be American denominations? Yeah. Could it be the church in the world? Like what, what do African churches or Asian or European churches have to, to not contribute, but what do they have to teach us as Americans and vice versa? There's quite a bit going on there that we're missing out on because we think that <laughs> I also think of Jesus, you know, if your eye sins, pluck it out type thing. Uh, maybe we're using that metaphor for denominations. We're cutting off our hands, plucking out our eyes because we think that they're causing us to sin. But really, it's just this beautiful body that Christ has made, or the spirit has made in Christ. Well, and honestly, I think that in in a lot of ways that fits the metaphor Paul is using better. I mean, it's not saying that I think you could totally use that within a specific congregation to say that, you know, Lucy is really good at this and Bob is great at the sure. Great. No problem. But I mean, when you think about the body, the optic nerve is pretty different than the kneecap, right? Right. Like, I mean, those are really, really different things yet both very important. And so in that way, I think it fits the metaphor better to think about there being much more difference between the two. Um, Like, I haven't really thought of it that way much other than in a vague sense, but I mean, it it makes a lot of sense that 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 would apply here. Like I said, in some ways, I think it almost fits. It's a more natural application of the metaphor Paul is using. Yeah, and I think, you know, Paul probably didn't intend it that way. That's, you know, I, I don't care, but I need to say that because there have people... changed so much since when he was <laughs> right. writing that, you know, Paul's not, he's basically writing to Romans across the board. And yeah, there's some Greeks, there's some so on and so forth, but they're all within the Roman empire. So they all have a shared, uh, cultural, social idea of some sort. And, and in denominations like we're talking about today, right? you know? Yeah. yeah. And he's not about creating denominations either, so there's a lot of caveats we can make. But I still think that even if Paul didn't mean that originally, I think it's a really good application of, okay, so what does that say about Pentecostals? Well, maybe they're the hands that do things that Lutheran eyes can't do. Or maybe they're the maybe they're the eyes that see things that Lutheran feet can't get to, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if that's true for Pentecostals and Lutherans, I think it's probably true for Catholics and Baptists and nope. Methodists. Just the two of us. We're it. Just That's the two it. of us. Yeah, we're, we're the 
<laughs> you know, but yeah, I mean, again, if you say nobody would say that, but that's kind of the assumption, you know, because I mean, I admit that this isn't, hasn't been a comfortable process, um, at least, you know, on this side of like to use the baptism, infant baptism one as an example, I'm pretty comfortable with that. And it's been a good, like stretching, like good growing experience. But during it, it wasn't great. It didn't feel <laughs> right. It was yeah. uncomfortable and confusing. And I had to admit that there were some um, problems, like some even like some things I when I say I needed to repent of, that's a little too, uh, too much. But like, there were some things in my heart that needed to change. And that's never like, fun <laughs> but it sure is a lot better for us you know it's like yeah running running uh running every day is not a fun thing and i don't do it so i'm just assuming but <laughs> if you're able to then run a marathon at some point afterwards that's quite the accomplishment that's you learn you learn a lot from that's good for you that's you know what I, what i'm saying yeah so, um, Growing is not fun. It never is. We we have this like myth that it kind of is fun. Like it's fun because when you're a kid, <laughs> yeah, when you're a kid, you know, you want to be an adult. Uh, one of the big things that when I was a kid, that it was a milestone is I don't have to order off the kids menu type uh, thing, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. Um, and you want to grow up and you want to do that. And then when you get there, you're like, can I be a kid again? Yeah. Or like, uh, for me, it was always, man, I can't wait. So nobody's telling me what to do all the time. And then yeah. I get to be an adult and there's <laughs> been plenty of times when I wish someone would just tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and even, uh, biologically it's yeah. no fun, right? Yeah. Puberty oh, gosh, and yeah. acne and all that kind of stuff. It's not fun. We forget that growing, there's a a common phrase, there's growing pains. You actually hurt when you grow. I think it would be better if we remember that that growth experience, though it's not fun, there are wonderful experiences along the way. At the end of that growth, there are significant things that happen that make us who we are. And it's a journey that we're all on and we all strive to is to grow and to be better than we were and to be more than we were. Right. And while there are certainly parts of childhood that I wish I could reclaim or wish that I could still, you know, have or be, I also would not go back to being a child if that were possible. You know, I have not just I've learned so much, I've changed so much, like growing is, is maybe we already said this, but growing is, there's a reason that that's how God set things up. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know, like it is the the goal that we have. It is the aim or the end or the whatever you want to call it, because um, like I guess not to repeat myself, but whether you're an existentialist or not, like this constant progress or process of growing is good for us. Because if you don't grow, you you die or are dead, right? Even if you're not growing physically, you're still growing some way yeah. throughout your life. And so I think it's, I don't know, I don't know why we would expect faith to be different. Huh. Yeah. And I can say that my growth has gotten me to a place where I might not know all the answers. Certainly I don't. But because of the growth that's happened in my life, in my faith and in my theology, I don't have this, I don't have a brittle fear. I don't have this fear 
that I'm making wrong choices. I don't have this fear that maybe another denomination has a different truth and that's the right truth. Uh, I don't, that's not even how you would say it, right? <laughs> um, that maybe another denomination is true and I'm wrong. Um, I don't have those fears anymore. At least they don't define me. I, I might have them every once in a while, but they don't define me. They don't identify me, of course, but also how I operate in this world of theology of faith with people. I actually have found that I have a lot more friends than I used to in terms of theology. Well, and you know, I think about, um, so I think this metaphor works. I'm not an architect, so bear with me a second here. But so the tallest building in the world right now, I believe, is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, right? I don't remember how tall it is, but it's fantastically tall. Mm -hmm. And they had to build it in such a way that it actually is able to sway a little bit so that it doesn't fall over, you know? Whereas you'd think, well, if you're going to build this gigantic building, you'd want it rigid and, um, you know, but it turns out that is actually safer and more secure if it's able to sway some when it's the tallest building in the world. You know, I, I, I think I kind of think of that in what we're talking about here of rigidity isn't actually safer. It just feels like it until things break. Yeah. <laughs> and then you wish you'd had a little bit more sway in there, I think. Oh boy, and we have seen tons of stories of people breaking. Yeah, I mean, tons. I did. I think we both did that in some ways. I mean, I think that's yeah. what got us to doing what we're talking about right now is that the building needed to sway, and then it didn't. It couldn't. Um, and so now we're exploring, or even rebuilding, or recontextualizing, or whatever the right word is, because you know, this time we're going to put a little more sway in the building. I like that. So it seems like we've come to two sort of answers, <laughs> um, if we can ever come to answers here. Uh, but two of them would be, of course, Paul's biblical metaphor of the body in our relationship to one another. Uh, but as we live in our faith, I like Ryan's metaphor a lot, which is we are buildings meant to sway. Mm. I think that those are the two functions of how the church works together. Uh, works together to, um, yeah, to help support the body of Christ throughout the world, but also to help us sway when times get tough so that we can endure the storms of life as terrible and cheesy as that is. Well, there's always some truth to every trite phrase, right? That's why it's trite, because there's something to it. That's why we hear it so much, you know. Yeah. But I think, I think, for me, it's this idea that for so long I was afraid of this approach, but what I'm starting to explore or starting even to accept, I think, is that, no, I think this is actually the way it was supposed to be all along. I, th I think this is how God designed things, you know, uh -huh. and I think through various historical cultural <laughs> things, we got pretty far from that idea because we wanted to be certain and right and um, know everything. And I think maybe what the time in history and life that we're in right now is showing us is that that doesn't, it doesn't work. It can't work. Um, but I don't think that has, I don't think that is a bad thing. I think that's actually something that will be much that is much better for us 
but it does require us to rely on ourselves less and on God more. And anytime that's true, that's easy to say and very hard to do. So I love what you just said, Ryan. I have something that just came to my mind that I've got to share because I always think philosophy. And one of my favorite philosophers is Jacques Derrida. It wouldn't be one of Uh, these episodes if we didn't didn't put Derrida (laughs) in there somewhere. That's right. And he says something really quite interesting. It's just in a little article that he has, and he talks about the Tower of Babel. And he gives a different idea of what the Tower of Babel is. And he tells us that the curse of Babel is that we were all speaking one language. And this one language tried to usurp God, right? Tried to touch the face of God, if you will, by building a tower up into the heavens. And what Derrida says is that God actually gave a gift to humanity at the Tower of Babel, and it's not typically interpreted this way, but the gift is different languages. He confused their tongue, right? That's how it says it, I think, in the Old Testament. Yeah. And this gift made it so that they no longer can build the building that um, was a fool's errand anyway. But what's remarkable about that is if you flash forward all the way to the redemption of God's people through Jesus Christ, on Pentecost, what he does is he doesn't bring people into the into the fold, into the community, into the family of God through a singular language, but he gives the gift of his Holy Spirit through all languages. Mm-hmm. He gives the gift of his Son through all languages that are being spoken and probably more. And I get a little uncomfortable because I'm not Pentecostal. Well, but no, but, but those languages were ways that God was bringing glory to you know, to God through them. Um, like God was doing amazing work through all those multiplicity of languages because yes. what they heard the people doing was praising God in the languages that they didn't even know how to speak. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe a good way to wrap this up is to suggest that maybe we should be more Pentecostal in that sense of the word, that maybe we should lean more into the Pentecostal nature of God and his revelation of who he is through our differences more than our similarities or more than our uniformity. And maybe we can also use our our brains and be more comfortable with that and say it's okay to read uh, or Jewish philosophers who don't say much about (laughs) Jesus or Pentecost. And yet, look what we were able to learn from it. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a good way to to kind of encapsulate what we've been talking about today. Well, as always, we want to thank you for listening. We want to encourage you to write us with any thoughts, any opinions, really anything that you want to share with us. If you email us at FrontierFaithPodcast at gmail.com, we will get to those and we will uh, listen and respond. We want to hear from you. How are you liking this? What are you getting from this? Uh, The stories that help us the most are those that are saying, you know, you really impacted my life in this way. Even if it's just you thought of something in a brand new way, we would love that. Trust me. Or if there are things you want us to talk about. I mean, I can't promise that we will with everything, but I mean, I, we always like more ideas. That's that's great, too. Yeah. So feel free to email us. Even if you don't, we're just glad that you're listening. Please, if you haven't already, give us a like on, um, not a like, but give us five stars on the podcast of your choice, uh, whether that's Apple or Spotify or whatever you do. 
Uh, I've been told, I've heard several people, I'm sure you've heard this in plugs too, but it does help. It lets people know that we exist. And the more people that hear this, I think the better that we can have this conversation in the um, months and years to come. As always, thank you. And we'll catch you next time as we continue our conversation on this frontier of ours.